Sal Berry. Right, nobody tanks on purpose as the Penguins. And Tim Parrish. He is going to become a front office person. That's my prediction. This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Barry, and with me is Tim Parrish. And today we are going to talk about four defensemen who are retiring from the NHL. We'll call this our defenseman retirement extravaganza special or something like that. Tim, what's up? How you been? Um, you can just say I'm all right. You don't have to come up with the, I, I'm as hot as the Sedin twins or whatever you said that one time. I'm pretty sure I never said that. <laughs> I said, I said, if I was any better, I'd be twins. Yes. Okay. Sorry. So anyways, you got some news for us about the cup. Oh, yeah, we talked last week about 2021 Cup coming out and yep. didn't really know anything other than saw like a couple quick preview images for it. But um, they did actually put out the full sell sheets for all of that. And uh, we know that there are uh, essentially, what is it, six cards per pack, one pack per box. So that's the typical configuration of most Cup. We don't really know prices yet because nobody's pre-signed. Mm-hmm. Now that the sell sheets are out, you would think that somebody would throw up a couple numbers out there to try to pre-sell. And other than the couple pre-sell cards, quote unquote, that some people are listing online, which how do they know they're even going to get them? But whatever. There's really no numbers because there's there's no checklist. So you can't really make up anything for some boxes or breakers or anything like that. There, so I don't know. Well, park. Six, seven, eight hundred. I think with the set like the cup, and I think with the way sports cards have grown over the past two years in popularity, I think got a couple of things going on here. There's no checklist, so it's kind of hard to say like to throw a price tag on that because you can't really tout what's in the box. The other thing is is that I still think that that's not necessarily slowing the retailers from buying it. They're still going to buy it. They're just not sure what they want to sell it for yet. Like if I had a card store or if I was DA Card World or whatever, I'd get my hands on as much cup as I could, but I wouldn't necessarily do a pre-sell. I might wait and see, you know, because you know you're going to sell out of whatever you have. So maybe there's no advantage to doing a pre-sell if you're going to buy the maximum allotment that you can get. And then you're still going to try to get top dollar because that's basically how it is now. And it's the cup. It's not MVP or something like that. The other thing that we do know is they slapped a date on it. You know, we'll see if that materializes, but they have it right now as November 16th. Oh, wow. So okay. 31 plus so like 50 days before the end of 2022, we will get our final 2021 product. That's crazy that it's going to miss the Toronto Expo by a couple of days, but it's going to be out in time for the Chicago Sports Spectacular the following weekend. So seems like it's just a little off. Maybe it'll come out a little earlier. Well, if they get that out and they get Series 1 out, I think they'll uh, have a few pretty big weekends between those two shows. That's for sure. Funny that you have a, a 2021 and a 22-23 product coming out at the same time. Yeah. It's one of them things. I think we'll, until this all works out of the wash, 
I think uh, we'll see that still going forward for a little while. Okay, so of course, after we recorded our last podcast, like the very next day, three players, three notable players announced their retirement. Zdeno Chara announced that he was retiring. P.K. Subban announced that he was retiring. Keith Yandel announced that he was retiring. And then a little bit earlier in the offseason, Duncan Keith announced that he was retiring. So we're adding Duncan Keith to this. So the other three announced their retirement. Just as, you know, we were done recording and then I was in the edit stage and then Tim texts me and he's like, wouldn't you know it, the day after you record and then all this big stuff goes down. So, you know. It happens every time. Yeah, well, it's every it's a time. Well, one nice thing about a weekly show is that we can get to it. The bad thing about a weekly show is people might have already moved on. They might be like, oh, you're talking about Zidane Chara. That is so last week. But what do you want? We're a weekly show. The thing about a weekly show is we'll get to it. The bad thing about a weekly show is it's supposed to be weekly and we don't always get to it. <laughs> right. Well, you know, when I can hire uh, somebody to do the editing for me and you can hire somebody to watch your kids or mow the lawn or whatever it is you do oh, as a parent. Then because I'm a I'm a housewife. No, you're a housewife. No, you've actually you've been taking care of your wife because she yeah. had surgery. She did, and she's out of bed now. So, but she's still out of, out of work for the next four weeks. So you get to be Mr. Mom. Uh, she doesn't let me. So. No, I know. Okay, so I'd like to start with Duncan Keith because. Obviously, he's the player I know the best from this list of four defensemen that we're going to talk about because he spent most of his career with Chicago. He spent 15 seasons with Chicago and one with Edmonton. You know, he was a great NHL player. I mean, no doubt he'll be in the Hall of Fame in three years. Not that this is necessarily a Hall of Fame speculation episode, but we'll talk about the player's merits. But just to throw out some quick stats here. 1,256 regular season games, 106 goals, 540 assists, 646 points, plus minus of 159, 675 PIMS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he really raised his game in the playoffs because you look at the regular season, he had 646 points in 1,256 games. So he was maybe a point every other game in the regular season. But in the playoffs, he had 91 points in 151 games. So he was, what is that? That's like 0.66 points, we'll just say, per game. So definitely more scoring in the playoffs. That's when you got to raise your game. And then just to throw out a few of the accolades in his career. Okay, all-star game, 2008-2011-2015-2017. He was a gold medalist for Team Canada in 2010 and 2014. Of course, a Stanley Cup champion with the Chicago Blackhawks in 2010, 2013, 2015. Two-time Norris Trophy winner in 2010 and 2014. Two-time First Team All-Star 2010, 2014. Conn Smite Trophy winner in 2015. Second All-Star team in 2017. And he is named to the NHL All-Decade First Team for the 2010s. So that is quite an impressive career. Yeah, if we're if we're going to have the conversation about is he Hall of Fame, I don't think there's a question, honestly. He's on the list of the 100 greatest players of all time. So when the NHL made that list back in 2017 and had the 100 greatest players ever, he's on that list. 
and number 101 is Evgeny Malkin, as we all know. Oh, 100 greatest players. He's there, and you can't you can't deny the stats. I mean, 646 career points as a defenseman. It's pretty darn good. He's got a con Smythe. He's got three Stanley Cups. You can't argue with these stats, especially because if you add the two Norris trophies, I mean, really, he's he's got to arguably be a top 10 defenseman of all time, maybe. And, you know, one thing that I like to point out is his longtime defense partner, Brent Seabrook. The two of them were so effective playing together that in the 2010 Olympics, Seabrook was on Team Canada because they wanted Duncan Keith. And they wanted Duncan Keith to play his game exactly how he plays his game. So they brought his defensive partner. Now, don't get me wrong. Seabrook was a great defenseman for the Blackhawks. And I think they should eventually retire his number because he had such an impressive career with the Blackhawks. But those two together, they were a top tier pair of defensemen. And it's kind of funny when you see that. I'm actually reading a book about the 1972 Summit Series and Team Canada back in 72 uh, another two Blackhawks that they recruited then were Bill White and Pat Stapleton. They wanted those two guys to play together, so they brought them both. And they did the same thing with Keith and Seabrook in the 2010 Olympics. They wanted Keith to be on his game. They brought his defensive partner. I just thought that was really cool. It's like a one-two punch. You can't have one without the other. One goes where the other one goes. Not quite as bad as the Sedins. I have to bring them up twice in one show, but it's definitely a compliment. I don't want to say I'm sad to see Duncan Keith retire. I was sad to see him leave the Blackhawks. And then I think in Edmonton, he played below expectations. He didn't have a really good season. And I guess it's just time, you know? I mean, it's like there are some defensemen who are great and can play until they're like 42, 43, 44. And then you have some that just have really good careers and then they retire. You look at like Dennis Potvin. Potvin played from... 73, I think, to 88. You know, he played like 15 years, you know what I mean? And then you look at someone like Ray Bork, and he played 22 years, and both are in the Hall of Fame. So it's not necessarily like who has the longest career gets into the Hall. It's just sometimes you have guys with longevity. We'll talk about our next guy on our list had a very long career. You know, they all can't be Chris Chelios and play 26 seasons. I guess what I'm saying no, because the thing is, Duncan Keith's one of those players, and you know, currently, as far as defensemen go, I think one name that gets thrown around, and I'm not just being a homer here, but Chris Letang's another one. These guys have very, very fine-tuned workout and conditioning um, that they'd go through, not only in the off-season, but during the regular season, to keep mm-hmm. themselves at that level. It seems to me like over the years, probably in the last 10 to 20 years, when I've been much more keenly aware of of hockey and NHL, the guys that are the oldest guys are generally the defensemen, it seems like. I think it's because of that, because that takes a lot of extra conditioning and extra work that you put in during the downtime. And Duncan Keith was known for that. I mean, he took pride in the what he did to be able to stay in shape and keep up with the guys that were much younger than he was. So the fact that he had to hang him up, I mean, he realized himself, I don't know that I can do this anymore. When you get to that sobering moment in time, regardless, I, I think of how old you are, and you realize that 
the body's just not keeping up. Makes for a sobering mm-hmm. moment, especially for fans. Yeah. And, you know, another thing, though, is like with defensemen, I mean, of course, you look at forwards and so much of their game depends on speed and agility. And with defense, it's more about smarts and positioning. I mean, I'm generalizing here. I'm not a hockey coach. I'm not a hockey scout. But I don't think what I'm saying here is really earth-shattering analysis. That's why you can have defensemen who play longer. Uh, I mean, if you're Bobby Orr, of course, that speed is part of your game. But if you look at somebody like Ray Bork or somebody like that, I don't remember Bork being a particularly fast skater, but he was... His positioning was, you know, second to none. I mean, he was he was a solid, well, more than solid. He was one of the all-time greats. Of course, speed kills everything. If you have speed, so be it. But, yeah, that's... we got players like, in my mind, Paul Coffey, who could skate faster backwards than some players could skate forwards. Coffey's a great example. The Tang used to be pretty quick. He's mm-hmm. kind of lost a couple steps. You know, he used to always impress me with his speed was Trevor Daly. Trevor Daly was fast. So, yeah. So, I definitely think so. We're looking at the Hockey Hall of Fame class of 2025. Keith will definitely be in that class. I can't think of anybody else. Well, we're going to talk about more people who are retiring. But, yeah, he would he'd definitely be in that. I can certainly see that. You know, what about his hobby impact? I mean, I know you as a Blackhawks collector, obviously, collect Duncan Keith cards. And... You know, in my opinion, I think Keith's always had that small group of collectors that were always chasing his cards from the very beginning. Part of that's obviously he was on original six team for so long. Also doesn't hurt that it was the Blackhawks and they won multiple Stanley Cups with him captaining the blue line back there. And we've talked a million times about how traditionally defensemen don't get a whole lot of hobby love, except for a couple of recent rookies right. uh, over the last few years. But, you know, I think if there's a list of top five, maybe modern defensemen uh, from a hobby standpoint, I think Duncan Keith would have to be on that list as far as collectors go. I don't know. See, here's the thing. I'm not aware of a lot of people outside of Chicago collecting him. Like they would say collect Patrick Kane or even Jonathan Taves. You have- I think that, again, goes back to the lack of love for defensemen. Right, Exactly. So but if you were not, to break this down onto a list of who would, if there were a list of top defensemen that were collected overall in the hobby, where would Keith fall on that list? And I think he would be top five, at least hmm. at least modern recently. Because think about, it. so if you look up his card stats, we're going to have some card stats here for all these guys. So if you look up his total card stats, he has about 1,659 cards. 14 of those are rookie cards. So they're all from the 05, 06 releases. So if you think about that, all of his rookie cards are sandwiched in that rookie class, that extra crop of rookies from that year that included the likes of Crosby and Ovechkin as your main draws. So he came from one of the better rookie classes from a card standpoint. So you would think a lot of people would be even periphery chasing that kind of stuff but again it boils down to like defensemen not really getting a whole lot of push but like i said i think he would be higher up there you may not think so i've actually run into way more keith collectors or people that claim to be keith collectors than i think i have anybody else that's going to be on our list oh i believe it and that's probably the only reason why i would actually branch out to say something like that i mean i think somebody else on the list might be a little more popular to collect than keith but maybe not 
you do more trading than I do. You definitely do more than that. I only know what I do like at card shows. I, I do make some trades, but since I've been selling at shows for the past year, and I sell a lot in Chicago, Duncan Keith is definitely popular among Chicago collectors. I mean, I have people who will buy his cards, you know, even base cards, low-end jersey cards, whatever. So he is definitely a fan favorite in Chicago. If you think he transcends outside of Chicago, I believe it. Again, we're seeing this with like Adam Fox and Kale McCarr. Those guys have transcended outside of their fan base in a hurry or outside of their team's fan base in a hurry because of how well those two played in their first couple of seasons. I think that there will probably be more interest in Duncan Keith's cards when he gets into the Hall of Fame. I mean, as we say, the stages of when a player is collectible, when he's a rookie, when he hits a milestone, when he retires, when he gets inducted into the Hall of Fame, and when he dies. Right, right. So those are the checkpoints. Or if they do something significant, every time somebody does something to raise their profile, I think that brings interest in their cards. And there's really not a lot of things you can do between that retirement phase, that Hall of Fame phase, and then, you know, eventually passing away. I mean, unless the player becomes a coach and then become a popular coach, and then there might be interest in their cards. I mean, I've seen that with like Joel Quenville cards. Heck, I even saw a um, Dave Hackstall. Um, what? Yeah. Jeez, um, that's weird. I wouldn't think anybody would want him at all, ever. Well, it was a Dave Hackstall Indianapolis ice card from a minor league set. And I saw it sell for like 10 or $15, which is funny because I bought that whole set for like $3. Must have been a Seattle Kraken fan. That's exactly what it is. That's what brought interest into his cards. What else do you want to say about Duncan Keith well, cards? So let's look at this. What you said as far as um, taking the interest of a player and amplifying it by bringing him into the Hall of Fame. What's generally what people chase? Rookie cards. So we took a look at some of the top rookie cards that you can get. Remember, we're talking 0506 here. So a lot of the 0506 players, if they weren't the mega, mega superstars, they got overshadowed. If you look at what's out there, I mean, you know, his Black Diamond rookie from that year, you can expect to pick one of those up, five, ten bucks. You know, his Young Gun card, and these are, I'm not talking graded values. This is like ungraded. His young gun card, 15 to 20 bucks. You can pretty much find it in that range all day long. Uh, his Ice Premier rookies, about 10 to 12 bucks. For a future Hall of Famer, these aren't like earth shattering numbers. Uh, if you want to push the envelope a little bit, his SP Future Watch auto card, 30 to 40 dollars, which I think is really reasonable for a player like that. And the Cup, you know, his Cup rookie auto, between 90 and about 120. You'll generally find them. And even that's not that much. Really? I don't think I've ever seen one for that low of a price. I think one sold not too long ago for about $116. I mean, he's really an affordable player if you're looking for a future Hall of Famer as far as to pick up a few rookie cards, especially when the young guns are as cheap as they are. So mm -hmm. obviously, if you, if you go and buy graded or do graded or whatever... You can throw whatever multipliers on there you want, but that just gives you an idea of, of where his stuff falls. I've picked up a few of his young guns just because I needed one for my set, and then I wanted to have an extra one. And 
they seem to be about a $20 card. I always seem to get sucked into buying the one that's $20 to $25 and not the one that's $15 to $20. And I don't know why that is. Just bad timing, I guess, or whatever. Well, I'm sure you can expect to pay more in the Chicago area. There's no there's I mean, the premium market. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, see, you got to be quicker on those lower options. Yeah. Well, I should have been buying them 15 years ago. Maybe. I don't have a historical price to see if maybe they were at an all-time high when he won the Norris trophies and they had the cups. It was a different hobby back then anyway. I mean, Absolutely. it's kind of yeah. like anything pre-2020 is kind of like, this is what it was selling for when only hockey fans wanted these cards. And hockey collecting had less, I would even say fans, because yes, there are the Fairweather fans who are here to flip cards. And are looking and are saying, oh, this guy's pretty good. He's probably going to be in the Hall of Fame. I should invest in his cards. But I think there's a whole slew of people who are like, I used to buy hockey cards back then. I like hockey now. I mean, I'll give you like a perfect example. I set up at a show last weekend, a one-day show. And this guy was buying cards for me. And he bought cards for me back in June. I recognized him. He told me, oh, I bought these cards for me. Oh, yeah, I remember. And so he had only gone to two card shows in his life. And he was like in his early 60s. And he was asking me a lot of questions. And he was new to collecting cards. And I mean, I remember he bought like a Tony Esposito card off of me. And he says, this is a really interesting Tony Esposito card. He wasn't complaining about the price, but I was just explaining to him. I said, well, this is what's known as a black diamond, triple diamond, and you only get like two of these per box. Oh, really? Like, he didn't know any of these things. He knew what a die cut was when he looked at the card, but he didn't know that there were such thing until he found a die cut of a card that he wanted to buy, right? And it's just, you know, here's an example of a newly minted collector who never bought cards before. And now he's like, Tony Esposito's my favorite player when I was a kid growing up, and wow, there's a lot of cool Tony Esposito cards on the market that are like from the past 20 years. So you're getting some of that. And that's definitely bringing some interest into it as well. So that's why I say prior to 2020, it was really only the diehard card collectors who were driving those prices. And now we have all those new card collectors. And then we have all these speculators. And the less said about them, the better. I concur. So do you want to move on and talk about the other Keith? Oh, yeah, we can talk about other Keith. Let's talk about other Keith from uh, Duncan Keith to Keith Yandel. Yeah. So if, if you ask me, this was um, this was kind of the dumb moment for me because I wholeheartedly expected Keith Yandel to retire. Right. No matter of when. Because mm-hmm. uh, really, what what incentive did he have at this point other than the love of the game and to keep playing, which I'm sure he has. But he's 35 years old, which, you know, we always talk about that being like, that's that sweet spot, you know, 33 to 36, you know, right in that range. That's uh, the sweet spot for most hockey players to like, if they're really good, they may last a few more years. If they're not so good, that's right about the time where they hang them up. So it's just a matter of when for, for Yance here. He was only on a one-year contract last year with the Flyers. Didn't work out the way things may may have. I mean, look, he finished the year minus forty-seven. That was the worst mm-hmm. in the league. Uh, mm-hmm. He only had and he only had nineteen points. 
that was in 77 games. And those of you that know about Keith Yandel know that he's the Iron Man currently. So why only 77 games? Well, Mike Yell, the interim coach at the time, figured he was more of a liability at that point and decided to sit him. Um, so April 2nd is when the Ironman streak came to an end this past season. Uh, and he got replaced for some of the younger guys to give them an opportunity to play on the back end and get some ice time. And they made him a healthy scratch and ended his 989 consecutive game streak that had been going on for the last 13 seasons. So currently right now, Keith Yandel is the NHL's all-time Ironman player, meaning played consecutive games and holds the record for most consecutive games. Now, that will probably be broken now that Phil Kessel has another team and he's playing on Vegas this season uh, because he is nipping at his heels. And obviously with Yandel sitting and breaking the streak, you know, that number is what it is, and it's stuck there. But Yandel, I mean, yeah, you look at Yandel, that's probably going to go down as his singular claim to fame, is breaking Doug Jarvis's Iron Man record, right? I think we'd probably all agree to that. Yes. Not to say that he wasn't a bad player, because absolutely Keith Yandel was a stalwart defenseman that lasted 16 seasons in the NHL. So you think about it. We just talked about Duncan Keith, played 16 years on the Blackhawks, plus an additional year for Edmonton. Very similar. You got 16 seasons for Keith Yandel here as well. You know, 619 career points. Well, we just talked about Duncan Keith had 646. Now, I'm not trying to compare the two. Numbers aren't that far off. Correct. But do we look at him in the same light as we do a Duncan Keith. I wouldn't necessarily call Keith Yandel a stay-at-home type defenseman, but I don't think he gets the accolades that maybe he should as a player because all of his accomplishments, for the most part, were spent out in the desert playing for Phoenix, Arizona, whatever you want to call them. I guess they were Phoenix at the time when he was drafted because I was yeah. 05. So... What's your opinion on Mr. Yandel? So a couple of things. So I was annoyed when his Ironman streak ended at 989 games. The Flyers were a terrible team. And I understand that maybe they wanted to give a younger player an opportunity. But I guess it would have been cool if he played the last five games. You know what? The Flyers were second worst team in the Eastern Conference. What's the worst that could happen? That it would make their draft position better because they lost a couple games at the end? Because I know the idea is to win games, but, you know, <laughs> sometimes you lose games too. I mean, just look at the Blackhawks and what they're, they're setting themselves up for failure this season. If you don't believe me, go look at their roster. And then after... Kane and Taves, see who else you might remember who is really going to make a difference this year. Nobody tanks on purpose, 83-84 Penguins. Right, nobody tanks on purpose, says the Penguins. That's <laughs> uh, hearsay. The 0304 Penguins? The only year I'll give you is 
And that's only because that's sort of been confirmed by numerous people. Yeah, they brought up that goalie from the minors and he was terrible and he like never played in the NHL again, I don't think. But he did what they needed him to do, which was to be terrible. Okay, so Keith Yandel, I still don't get it why they didn't just, just let him play those last five games. Then his streak would have been at 994. Okay, not quite a thousand. Would have been cool if he had a thousand consecutive games, but whatever. Yes, that'll be his legacy. He played 989 consecutive games. And you know what? Even if Phil Kessel breaks that record, Yandel still has the record for longest streak as a defenseman. And those are different positions. And we talked about, like, as a defenseman, you're blocking shots and you're hitting. Defense can be a much more physical game than offense. I mean, of course, there are forwards who play a physical game, but defense is a more physical game. And he somehow managed to do 989 consecutive games without getting hurt, without being scratched. All the things that can happen that could sideline you for a game or two didn't happen to him. He also did play in three all-star games, but of course, you know, someone's got to rep the Coyotes, right? And two of those all-star games were with the Yotes. And then who did he play for in 2019? Who was his team before? Uh, oh, the Panthers. Yeah. So he repped the, uh, let's see, he played in 11, 12, and 19. So the Coyotes, the Coyotes, and the Panthers, right? So, I mean, he played in a couple of all-star games. Yeah, you know what? His numbers are very similar to Duncan Keith. But someone's got to play for the Coyotes. Someone's got to score for the Coyotes. I mean, even as a defenseman. But Yandel had a career plus minus of minus 103. I mean, in the playoffs, he was minus two overall. But, you know, he had 36 points in 58 games. So better than half a point per game. Yeah, that is a very interesting connection, how Duncan Keith and Keith Yandel had similar scoring. I think the difference was was that Keith was able to do it to help his team win. And of course, it's easier when you have better players around you. Could Keith Yandel have been a Duncan Keith type player on the Blackhawks? I don't think so, because he also played on other teams. He played on the Panthers for a couple of years. He played on the Rangers for a couple of years and didn't necessarily help bring those teams to the promised land. No, but I think one thing that he's known for amongst his peers is definitely his work ethic, and I think that's what his legacy is going to end up being in the NHL. You ask most of his teammates, and they've been interviewed time and time again, they all say that he's has the most energy, the best work ethic, and, and, and he's a leader in the locker room. Uh, you know, he's mentored younger players, and you know, he seems like I mean he seems like a really cool guy. You hear him on interviews, you hear him talk about you know everything. You know, he he goes on Chicklet Show a lot, talks mm-hmm. to those guys, and he's one of those guys that I wouldn't I don't know that I would mind seeing in a media outlet position covering the game because I've heard him so many times over the years do these interviews. He's got that kind of personality and insight into the game that you don't necessarily see other than the ones and zeros and the X's and O's. He's got a little more of the psychological aspect to to the game. And I think that insight adds to that whole, you know, quote unquote, new generation of sports coverage that a lot of networks are pushing towards. So I could definitely see him taking a place behind a desk, you know, doing some type of analytic type thing. If he wants to do that, obviously. Yeah. I'm telling him he needs to do that. But you're right. You know, the similar numbers and everything else. 
look at that consecutive game streak, 989. He only played 1,109 regular season games. So 89% of his games, based on the math, mm-hmm. were consecutive games. 89% mm-hmm. of his career games. That's craziness. And you that's think another about 13 seasons. Guys don't even last that long. What's the average NHL career? Like three and a half years, two and a half years? 13 seasons, he didn't miss a game. It's nuts. Absolutely nuts. Does that make him a Hall of Fame player? Probably not. No. No individual awards, no championships, and no real statistics that impressed outside of the streak. I mean, I think he'll go down as an all-time great, but I don't think he'll be immortalized in Toronto. An all-time great? Isn't that what Hall of Fame is? No. Absolutely not. Hall of Fame is the best of the best. There's plenty of all-time greats that aren't in the Hall of Fame. One of your favorites, Jeremy Roenick. He's an all-time great. Uh, that's political, though. Still, he's not in the Hall of Fame. For the same reason that it took them 20 years to put Doug Wilson in the Hall of Fame. Political. You could have said the, could have said the same thing up until Doug Wilson was put in. I mean, there's plenty of guys out there that are legends in their own right based off of how the fans perceived them or how they were on their team and various other aspects that just aren't in the hall of fame. I'm yeah, still he, surprised that Curtis Joseph's not in the hall of fame. I mean, that's another one, you know, Alex McGillney. Why isn't he in the hall of fame? Mike Richter. Is that political? Is Richter political? I don't know. Can't pin that on everything. So I don't know. Like I said, I think Yandel will be considered up there. At least he'll be known for this. Um, as far as whether that translates into people actually collecting his cards, that's a different story entirely. Because I don't think Yandel's what you would necessarily call a hobby darling when it comes to collecting. We're talking about the fencemen. And despite any accolades, you know, the demon don't get the hobby love, like we already said. And until recently, of course, you know, he didn't really have any front and center attention except when it came down to the streak. You know, his plus-minus play is very good. So other than the Ironman statistics, I can't see a large hobby following jumping on board. Not to say that there aren't collectors out there for Keith Handel. I'm sure there's plenty. Um, I've actually come across a few over the years. There used to be a big one out there on one of the forums that I remember. He used to have, like, his signature was, like, Keith Handel and a bunch of stuff on it. can't remember who it was off the top of my head. But you look at Yandel, all of his rookie cards come from 06, 07. So he's got 17 of them because there are a lot that year. So he does have a young gun. He has a cup RPA. Uh, he's 1,018 actual officially registered cards, which I find funny because that's pretty close to how many regular season games he had. But yeah, he's got plenty, plenty out there that you would, you could go after. And as you can imagine, they're not very expensive. I mean, anything down to like, victory rookie cards which you can pick up for a buck or two maybe mm-hmm. you can find them in a quarter box um you know his black diamond rookies are under five bucks you know even his young gun you could probably find a young gun for five to ten bucks most of them are going to sell in that range he's got a future watch auto that's about 20 to 30 dollars and even his cup rpa 30 to 50 bucks is generally where you'll, where you'll find that one that's probably the top of the heap right there. Mm-hmm. That cup card, if you can find one. 
Well, I think people who like records or like streaks and say, hey, I want a Phil Kessel rookie card and I want a Keith Yandel rookie card and I want a Doug Jarvis rookie card and a Gary Younger rookie card. That'd be kind of a fun little side project. Just consecutive game streak. You could uh, throw Steve Larmer in there. Of course, you'd also have to get a Steve Ludzik rookie card since they put Larmer on Ludzik's card and Ludzik on Larmer's card. So yeah, if you were going to like collect players with Iron Man streaks, that'd be kind of a fun little niche collection that would be pretty attainable. You stole my idea. Did I? I was going to cap it off with Cal Ripken cards, but now I can't do it because you already stole my idea. I didn't steal your idea. Nope, stolen. Hey. Hey, man, you could have called it. I wouldn't have brought it up till the end. I just thought of this on the spot, off the cuff. It's no longer original. Nope. It's off the list. Yep, you'd be copying me and not the other way around. <laughs> Certainly want to, want to do that. Who do you want to talk about next? Should we talk about the big Z? Sure. All right. So Zidane Chara retired at age 45. So this is how long Chara is. 45. Been. This is how long Char has been. I know, right? I'm 47, and a little part of me dies every time one of these guys retires, like Marlo and probably Joe Thornton. And I told you before we started recording, I'm a month older than Chara. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So Chara was drafted in 1996 by the New York Islanders. I mean, so we're talking a long-ass time ago. Played 24 seasons, so just throw out his career stats. 1,680 games played, 209 goals, 471 assists, 680 points, plus minus of plus 301. Penalty minutes, 2,085. In the playoffs, 200 games played, 18 goals, 52 assists, 70 points, plus minus of 49, 218 penalty minutes as far as awards go all-star game in 2003 2007 2008 2009 2011 2012 in the skills competition he won the hardest shot in 2007 2008 2009 2011 and 2012 i know that's not like an official award but wow i mean he was he put all his weight into those shots and it showed because i mean he's unbeatable in the hardest shot first team all-star in 2004 2009 2014 he won the norris trophy in 2009 he won the mark messier leadership award in 2011 oh he was a second team all-star in 06 08 11 and 12 so he was first all-star three times second all-star four times and then, of course, he won the Stanley Cup in 2011. So, quite a career. How many Norrises does he have? Just one? Just one. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. I wasn't sure. I think it was he got it for that 50-point yeah, season he had mm -hmm. with 19 goals. Char is a beast. I mean, everybody knows Char is a beast. And the fact that he's hanging it up. I mean, some people would look at that and are like, well, Chara was still in the league. Based off of the normal you know, pocket window for guys retiring, I mean, he should have been retired 10 years ago. But yet here he was still playing. Um, you know, a normal hockey player would bow down to this. You know, he's a superhuman machine. 
is essentially what's going on. So he signed a one-day contract so he could retire as a Bruin, which I thought was, I thought was cool, because as everybody knows, he wasn't a Bruin any longer. Um, he had moved on to the Capitals and then the Islanders for the second time. So that that's kind of cool. Char's another one of those guys that's that's well known for his training regimen and his preparation. I mean the last few years there's been a bunch of videos floating around out there on social media of just him and doing workouts and stuff like that in the off season. This guy's a he's an animal. I mean, seriously, he's an animal. Um it wouldn't have shocked me in the least if he didn't retire and he actually kept playing. Problem is was getting somebody to foot the bill for his contract and take up a roster spot for a 45-year-old player. Because once you get past a certain point, even if you can hack it, there aren't many teams out there willing to take the risk. That's part of the issue of, I think, why he hung it up. Well, and I think that's the thing, too, is that, like, the Chara's greatest advantage later became his detriment. He is a big guy with a long reach, but then as he slowed down, he became a big slow guy. Still with a phenomenal reach and you know, very intelligent hockey player, no doubt, from the years of experience, but it wasn't helping him. You know what I mean? He wasn't exactly what you'd say a nimble player. No. And he, you know, he, he hasn't wasn't... been for a while. You know, obviously he lost a few steps as the years go by, and you could clearly see that, you know, when he signed that one-year contract with the Capitals back in 2020, and then mm -hmm. his time with the Islanders this past season. You didn't hear his name called that often anymore. Not that he was an afterthought, but, you know, you get buried, right? So right. you get bumped down a couple line pairings and you don't see as much ice time. You know, you're not out there maybe on power plays as often as you were before. You're maybe not doing penalty kills like you were before. So, I mean, all of those things add up. Look, obviously the bulk of his finest work as we will call it is with the Bruins, right he helped the Bruins qualify for the playoffs in 11 of the 14 seasons he spent with them so that's nothing to shake a stick at at all you know look at his points you know for a defenseman in points he's third in Boston history the only two that are in front of him are both Hall of Famers and that's Ray Bork and Bobby Orr so if you look at his entire body of work, playing for the Islanders in Ottawa and Boston and then Capitals and Islanders again, you go over the whole picture. You know, look, he had 200 Stanley Cup playoff games. He's a plus 49 in the playoffs. Plus 49. This guy, like I said, he's an animal. He's got the record for the most NHL games played by a defenseman because he passed Chris Chelios. So, and that was this past season, like early in the year, like February. So it'd be a hard argument to make that he's not a Hall of Famer. Oh, no, he is. There's no doubt in my mind. 100%. 100%. He's got the individual awards. He has a Stanley Cup championship. He was an NHL first or second team all-star one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. He was a second team all-star four times. 
and he was a first-team All-Star three times. For seven years, Chara was one of the top four defensemen in the league. Either one of the top two. One year, he was the best defenseman as a Norris Trophy winner. Without a doubt, he's definitely in the Hall of Fame. I mean, most games as a defenseman, long career, 24 seasons, many first or second all-star team awards, Stanley Cup, individual awards, and what hardest shot? Could that be an honorable mention in his Hall of Fame resume? I think so. Of course. If we're given the only accolade for Keith Yandel as the Iron Man, we're definitely letting Char keep the hardest shot. Yeah. Although when you have as many other awards as Zidane Chara, you don't need to also, you know, oh, and he had the hardest shot, but it was like the hardest shot for like five years, 07, 08, 09. So three years and then 11 and 12. Another thing I want to just talk about really quick is his transactions. Like, cause he was on a couple of different teams. He was drafted by the Islanders, but he was part of the Alexei Yashin trade. So he was a good enough player that he was part of a package deal to the Senators for Alexi Yashin. Chara, a first-round pick, which became Jason Sveza. Bill Muckholt to the Senators for Alexi Yashin. So he was valuable enough to be part of that trade. And then, you know, what was kind of interesting was his career really got good at the end of his time with Ottawa. And then he was able to sign with the Bruins. It was kind of nice for Chara in the fact that his first really good seasons were like 02-03 and 03-04. When, when he started like becoming an all-star and stuff like that. And then it was like, then he became a UFA. He was only in Ottawa for four years. His contract he signed in Boston was in July of 06. Because he signed that contract and they named him the captain. Right as the season was going to start. Yeah, because I remember the 06-07 Fleer card where he's holding up the Bruins jersey at a press conference and he's got like a big grin on his face. Towards the end of his time with Ottawa, he was obviously good enough to sign his UFA with the Bruins and be named their captain like right away. Right. A lot of times that's unprecedented. Well, I don't say unprecedented. It's not unheard of. It's not unprecedented, but it's rare that a guy joins a team, and they make him a captain right away. I mean, even Gretzky was an alternate captain one season with the Kings before he replaced Dave Taylor as captain. I mean, recent examples I could think of are John Tavares going to the Maple Leafs and being named their team captain in his first season with them, and Chara being named the team captain with the Bruins like in his first season. You don't see that too often. Usually a player has to kind of be on the team for a little while, become that leader in the locker room, on the ice, off the ice, and win over the fans and and, and kind of be that guy. And Char was that guy for the Bruins like right away, and he didn't disappoint. I mean, he was, obviously his best years were with the Bruins and with the first part of his career with the Bruins, the first half of his career, whatever you want to say. I mean, his last award was in 2012. What was my point? I had a point here. Your point was that he is going to become a front office person for Boston. That's my prediction. You think so? Oh, we're predicting that? So we oh, agree. 
I mean, look at look at he's got. You know, you talk about having a mind for the for the game. He's that guy. He has that mind for the game. You know, you hear him on interviews and you hear him talk and all that kind of stuff, and it's just it's amazing just to hear the the hockey knowledge that he actually has and, and love for that game. I could easily see him taking a front off position somewhere. If it's not with the Bruins, with someone somewhere. I think it'd be great to have him there. I would like to see Chara as a studio analyst for the NHL network. Because I want to see him sitting behind the desk and I want to see how far back they have to pull the camera to get him all in the frame. <laughs> they would have to have him like on his chair, but underneath, not up on the riser or something of that nature. They'd have to have the chair all the way down at the lowest setting or something. I don't know if you've ever watched the NBA show on TNT, but Shaq takes up a lot of space. A lot of space. Yeah. So. Not that Big Z's as big as Shaq is, but he's certainly tall mm-hmm. and, and well, will take up a lot of space as well. Wasn't Charles Barkley was talking about meeting Zdeno Chara and like being excited to meet a hockey player that was the size of a basketball player? I thought that was yeah. kind of a funny story. Well, Barkley's notoriously a, a big hockey fan, too. So, But yeah, yeah, he did talk about that before. So, yes, yeah, so let's talk about Zdeno Chara's rookie card. One singular. Yeah, so if you look at that has eluded me for all these years. Yeah, if you look at Chara, um, because he's been in the league so long, he's got a lot of cards. You know, for the Chara collectors out there, I empathize with you and your 2067 cards that you have to chase. But as far as rookie cards go, that chase is not entirely as big. It's one, one card. So if you're looking for a Chara rookie. The 9798 SP Authentic, card number 186, is the be-all, end-all card. Cards rookie cards, yeah. Unless you count the AHL Kentucky Thoroughblades card, but I don't count. Well, that's an AHL card, and that's yeah. a team-issue card, so yeah. that's not an NHL rookie card. But that is uh, the kind of weird card that I would want to have anyways. Some people argue about those being rookie cards, but I say, nay, nay, I say. So the 9798 SP card, that's... Uh, that's his one and only rookie card. Hey, uh, hey really quick, you know what? A, also, what a Kentucky thoroughbred says. What a Kentucky. Nay. Oh yeah. Nay. Sure. They say nay. Yep. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, so anyway, he's got no young gun, no cup. The cup didn't exist. Uh, no young gun card because he didn't make it into the regular upper deck checklist there. So he does have a. Uh, a smattering of cards in 98-99, which would be the next following year. And he's in consecutive years after that. Something I found interesting about all this, if you look at the 2,000-some cards that he has, he averages in the early part of his career less than 50 cards a year in all of the sets. Now, if you think about that, in the early, the late 90s, the early 2000s, there were a lot of sets put out there. But wait, did a player actually have 50 cards issued in a given year at that time? Yeah, there's plenty of guys. You're talking about like parallels and stuff. Total cards for those seasons. I mean, I could see Gretzky in like 98, 99 having a ton of cards between all the inserts and all the Pacific parallels and stuff, but I can't see like a young Islanders defenseman having a lot of cards. I could see him having like an upper deck card, an SP authentic card. and a- That's what I'm saying. Not a lot of them are, you know, extending over into the inserts and all that kind of thing. Right. Okay. 
So, you know, the fact that he only averaged about 46 cards a year throughout most of those years, you know, is interesting. But once he became a Bruin, he was pretty much a mainstay on every checklist. You know, that first year in 06, 07, he had 109 cards that year, Um, which, again, that was a pretty big year for cards. There were a lot of sets out there and produced in 06, 07. Um, So other than those glut years between 2010 and 2014 when there was Upper Deck and Panini, he's got a ton of cards in that window that you can go out there and chase of all, all sorts of things. And so obviously looking at the one rookie card, now, I remember when this card was like ignored by everyone and you would find it sometimes in dollar boxes because nobody really cared about this card for a very long time. And then all of a sudden it started showing up in the 10 to $20 range. And now a lot of times you'll find this card well over 50 bucks. Um, 60 to 70 seems to be a sweet spot for that rookie card right now. You know, can you find it for less? Sure. Can you find it for more? Yes. That's what you can expect to find it for. A few other interesting ones. You know, obviously you're not, that's the one rookie you're chasing down. But the following year, 98-99, he had the SPX finite cards, the spectrum cards. That's a pretty chased after card, the one that's numbered out of 300. You know, that you can find those between 25, 30 bucks most of the time. And the UD3, the die cuts. So if the 9899 UD3 sets, they had parallels and the die cut parallel, the red version. So those are numbered out of 50. If you can find those, that's a pretty decent card. Those sell about 70 to 80 bucks most of the time. Uh, so that's a pretty decent early career Chara card. I unfortunately don't have that red version. I do have the blue and brown, bronze one, but not the red one. Now, his first known autograph card, can you guess what set that came from? Probably some SP Authentic Sign of the Times card from like late 90s, early 2000s. It was 99-2000 Be a Player Memorabilia. He had his hmm. auto in there. Yeah, those generally long like between 30 to 50 bucks for the base mm-hmm. one and like 50 to 70 for the gold one, if you can find them. Mm-hmm. How about his first jersey card? Do you know where that came from? Uh, How about the year? Just throw out a year because there's too many sets to guess. It's going to be 06, 07, and it's going to have a piece of Senator's jersey, but it's going to picture him as a Bruin. That is a very good guess because I could totally see that happening. However, his very first memorabilia or jersey card that I know of was in 01 Pacific Private Stock. It's a Game Gear card. I have only seen that card one time. One time. That is it. Never seen it again. You know what's interesting about a lot of these guys who are retiring now, a lot of these Hall of Fame caliber players, is that their rookie cards are beyond the junk wax era for the most part. Right. They're beyond the junk wax era. They're kind of in that not a sweet spot. They're kind of in that almost like that no man's land where like they might have a rookie card, but it's in like a set that wasn't overproduced or it's numbered. I'll give you like a, for instance, like Joe Thornton and Patrick Marlowe. And like another one who doesn't have a lot of rookie cards, Martin St. Louis. They have cards and the cards are findable, but they're not a dime a dozen, so to speak. And they're 
a little bit off the beaten path, you know, because I remember how hard it was for me to find a Martin St. Louis rookie card. I mean, is his 98-99 upper deck, does that count as his rookie card? He had Crown Royale, he had Dynagon Ice, and he had Omega. And, okay, and he did have upper deck, but okay, so maybe that's... Calgary that year. Yeah, okay, so maybe that's not the strongest example, but I guess what I'm getting at is like 90 to 95, forget about it, everybody and their mom had a rookie card. And then also the mid-90s, you had the World Junior Championships. So you had guys getting rookie cards like years before they played in the NHL. And then by like the late 90s, they didn't really do prospects in NHL sets. You did have sets like Bowman, CHL, but that was like not an NHL set. You know what I mean? And I think like another, actually the last example I can think of is like 97, 98 Pinnacle had like Roberto Luongo before he was an NHL player. They had a card of him in that set, if I remember correctly. Well, and you have all of the world, the world cards, you know, that mm-hmm. put out for all of the various tournaments and things like that. Like the Sedines came out of those and there's a Luongo in, in those as well. Right. You know, it goes back to the age old argument. Is a rookie card have to show them in their NHL uniform? Because some of those aren't considered rookies. Like the Patrick Barlow, the Thornton, those are rookie cards, but they're not in NHL jerseys. You know, same with Luongo, same with the Sedines. At least with at least with Charles' first card, he's in an Islanders uniform. It's not like an international tournament or a junior or the AHL, even the AHL. He's in an Islanders uniform. So I look at Pavel Bure's rookie card was in 90-91 upper deck, and he's with Team Russia at the World Junior Championships. And I wish he didn't have that card because his next card was in 91-92 upper deck and he's on rollerblades. The the rollerblade card. The rollerblade card. And then the argument would be, well, could this be his rookie card? He's not even in ice skates. (laughs) And with upper deck using the different photo on the back, they didn't even put that one in uniform. No. Because the card on the back is just a different shot of him rollerblading. (laughs) Right, yeah. Back when hockey cards were fun. They're still fun. Back when hockey cards could let their hair down a little, you know? Now they just save that for, like, Upper Deck saves that for canvas. Eh, but it's really just guys playing soccer in the hallway. We talked about that in the last yeah. episode. And not to bring this guy up again, but Top Skate, the stadium club for Top Skate, the stadium club cards. Remind me of what Upper Deck did with Canvas. So it's like a lot of off-the-wall, different, interesting photos on yep. those cards. Which, again, I wish they were real, but oh well. Nothing we can do about that. But Your anyway, mind makes them real, as Morpheus would say. If I had the wherewithal, I would, like, screenshot them all and then actually print them. But I know a guy I, who could do that. Then I'd probably be sued for copyright violation. Copyright uh, not if they're for personal use. God forbid fanatics comes after me. We have other people to go after. Anyway. Anyway. What else do so you guys he, say about Chara? Nothing. You know, I think he, he's going to be. Have you encountered any Chara collectors in your travels? I have not. I've never Bruce run into collectors, anybody. Yes. But I think the thing is, is that like, if it's an interesting Chara card, it would sell. But I don't think I ever really sold the Chara card to anybody. But I think that's more because I just never had anything really all that interesting to sell. I might have had a jersey card of his that sold because it's Chara and it's a jersey card. 
like you said, he had a lot of cards issued during his time with the Bruins. And yeah, I mean, of course, an autograph card is going to be worth more. But yeah, his one rookie card is from 97, 98. And I mean, even then he was with the Islanders. So, I mean, not that that matters. When you have a elite level career and you're probably going to be in the Hall of Fame, it doesn't matter what team you're pictured with, because at that point, it's about your body of work. You know, he was popular because he was the Bruins, but he just hung around for so long. And then he started breaking these longevity records that I think now a lot of people are like, oh, shit, he's actually pretty good. He had a pretty good career and uh, are now kind of like trying to pick up some of those cards. Yeah. And just like we said about, you know, Duncan Keith, I think if he goes into the Hall of Fame, interest will peak, at least for a portion or a small window. Class of 2025, we will have Chara and Keith for sure. My prediction now, we'll see what happens in three years. Calling it now. Yeah, but it seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah. Okay. One more player. P.K. Subban. Tired at age 33 recently. Um, Crazy, huh? Crazy. Second round pick of the Canadians in 2007, played 13 seasons in the NHL with Montreal, Nashville, and New Jersey. In 834 regular season games, 115 goals, 352 assists, 467 points. In the playoffs, in 96 playoff games, 18 goals, 44 assists for 62 points. As far as awards, NHL All-Rookie Team in 2011, Won the Norris Trophy two years later in 2013. He was a first-team All-Star in 2013 and 2015. He was a second-team All-Star in 2018. Played in three All-Star games. He won the King Clancy Memorial Trophy in 2022. And he was on the cover of NHL 19. Oh, forgot about that one. You know what? If we could count the Ironman streak and the hardest shot competition for Chara, we should also count being on the cover of an EA game. I mean, I'll count it. Why not? So I got to tell you, I was really surprised when I heard that Subban retired. Um, You know, I mean, I know that like he maybe wasn't doing that great with the Devils, but he's 33. You know, at 33, you, you still have a lot of time as a defenseman. And I don't know too much about what's been going on in his career lately. So maybe there's some stuff that I don't know. There's probably a lot of stuff I don't know. But it seems like if you're having a couple of bad seasons and you're like 33, you can still turn your career around. Maybe it's going to a different team. Maybe it's changing something that you do. Maybe it's playing with a different defense partner, right? Like maybe it's changing something about your game, some aspect of your game or something, right? It's not like when you're 38, 39, and it's like my knees are shot, I'm done. There's nothing I can really do for my career at this point. Whereas at 33, it's like, that's like prime time for a defenseman. I don't disagree. I was definitely not expecting a retirement announcement either to come from him. But you look at that, and you're like, yeah, he's been in the league since 2010. I don't want to discount his actual ability to play hockey because obviously that's an elite level to be on an NHL roster for anybody. But his play over the last few years has certainly been on the decline for whatever reason. I don't know, but I certainly thought there was still fuel left in the tank. And, you know, by the time you'd see training camp roll around, 
there'd be some team come knocking at the door, right? Saying, hey, we're willing to give you X number of dollars if you'll come play for us. You know, but here's what I think. You kind of get a feel for this in his retirement announcement and his thanking the world for everything speech that he posted out there on social media. And, you know, unlike the other guys on the list where you might see one show up in a broadcast booth, PK's already shown his chops and his ability to actually go and take over coverage on a network because he's done it already. You know, he, he's put up his on-air chops on ESPN, and I think his larger-than-life personality translates well to, again, that new-age type sports broadcasting that is being pushed. So if he stays with ESPN or he already has a contract with them to keep doing what he's doing, wouldn't shock me. If he signed somewhere else with like TNT or NHL Network or even TSN or Rogers in Canada, wouldn't shock me, you know, because let's face it, the contract he was getting at $9 million with the Devils, he's not going to get that elsewhere. And if somebody did come knocking and say, hey, we want you to play for one year, but we'll give you $3 million. There's a big difference between $3 million and $9 million, and you're going to go through all of that again when you could get paid a few million to sit at a desk and talk about the game. So I'm sure he'll fit in somewhere and he'll land with a network. If it's not ESPN, it's going to be somewhere else. And I think that's going to fit him well because I'll be the first one to admit, when PK came into the league the first few years, I was not a big PK Subban fan. You know, He's been a polarizing figure since the beginning. And you always hear from fans and media that there, you know, isn't enough personalities in hockey and everybody's bland and it's the same old thing. So PK shows up and he's this just huge guy that just breathes life into everything. And pregame interviews are great and postgame interviews are great. And, you know, everything is cool and different. And it's like, wow. But he got criticized a lot for that because he doesn't fit that mold of the traditional guy. And he does all these other things and even his charity work, which he does a ton of. And most of it's legendary on its own. He got criticized so much for his charity work because people accused him of doing it for publicity stunt and that not being what he really is. But people can't just accept the fact that, you know, hockey players have all these other aspirations outside of the rink. And many of them are talented enough for something that's bigger than hockey, bigger than the game. He's one of those guys that showed that. And so the fact that, you know, he can take on that role and do a lot more charity type stuff that he likes to do and he enjoys doing and be part of the analytics team for a channel and, and broadcasts and, and be able to put to use some of that personality that maybe was subdued a little bit because of critics, I think is going to be good. Over the years, I've shifted to the other side to become a fan of it. All right, this is why I got to tell you you're wrong. Because hockey players like to play hockey. So if I'm a hockey player and I'm in my early 30s and I can make $3 million playing hockey or I can make $3 million being a broadcaster, I'm going to play hockey. Also, another thing, he's not making that kind of money. That's Bill Simmons' kind of money. I remember when Bill Simmons' salary at ESPN was $3 million. And this is back when I was going to grad school for journalism. And we talked about that. We basically said, you know what? For every Bill Simmons who makes $3 million a year, makes more than that now, especially with this podcast, but say $5 million, right? You have hundreds of sports writers making 
$30,000 and you have thousands of sports writers blogging for free, right? For every guy who's paid a six figure or seven figure salary to write or talk about sports. So PK is not making more money as a broadcaster than he would as a player, unless it was like a one-way league minimum or two-way league minimum type of contract. Um, I'm not saying there's a network going to pay him more than that. What I'm saying is I don't think he's at a point in his hockey career where he wants to take a giant pay cut on his salary just to stay in the league and be on a third or fourth line D pairing Mm -hmm. get buried on a team that's probably not even going to be a contender. It's about winning the cup, right? I couldn't see any contending team really in the top tier wanting to bring him on for any amount of money. Okay. Wait for any amount of money, any amount of money that he's going to look at, you're talking $9 million. He's got a $9 million contract. Who's going to take that on? Wait, no one. You don't contract. sign a $9 million contract and then turn around and sign a $1 million contract. Why not? Players do that all the time. Name one that went from $9 million down to one. I don't know. You go from less money to more money to less money in their career. That's just pay how cut, it is. Sure, but that'd be a huge pay cut. But you're still making a lot of money. And you still made a lot of money. And you have that money in the bank and you make interest on that money. So if I could make $9 million a season for, what, five seasons or whatever that deal was, that's fine. And then if I got seven years in the tank left and I can make $7 million, okay, maybe I'll play three more years or four more years. Maybe I'll sign a two-year contract at a million a year, do really good, then be 35, and then be like, okay, now I want to sign for more money because I've proven myself and I'm... 35 and that's still good years for a defenseman see these things can happen i'm not saying that pk suban didn't think about this already there's definitely some ulterior motive you just don't have good defensemen retire at 33 and i know that he hasn't been very good with the devils and he was good with nashville he was great with montreal talk about environment man great with montreal Good to great with Nashville, and then, like, not great with the Devils. I mean, he was a minus all three years that he played with the Devils. And that's kind of why I said you have to really look at what he said in his retirement farewell. Because one of the things that he says in there is he never looked at himself or felt like he was just a hockey player. Mm -hmm. Because he always felt like he was bigger than that. And he was a person that was all of these other things, but just happened to play hockey. That was his means to an end. What his end is, I don't know. I guess what I'm getting at is, if he can go off and do all of these other things that he's always wanted to do and use his celebrity, popularity, whatever you want to call it, to do all of these things that he's always aspired to do and still make a decent money acting as a, on a role as e, on ESPN or one of the sports networks. Yeah, sure. Is there something else going on there? Maybe. Does he have an injury? Maybe. Is there a health issue? Maybe. We don't know. But I just think that he came to the point in time where he was just like, you know, could I still play? Yeah. Could I still go out there and average 18 minutes of ice time like I was with the Devils? Yeah, but I'm no longer a top defenseman anymore. There's no doubt there. Could you 
taking a depth role on a team, yeah. But again, based on salaries and the salary cap and who has availability, I couldn't see him signing without taking a huge pay cut, a huge cut in minutes, up down to the third line. And yeah, hockey players play hockey, but there comes a point where you're just like, is it worth it anymore? And since he already got involved with ESPN in the postseason, full-time media role doesn't seem to me to be too far fetched, honestly. No, and ESPN currently use a little more, little more zing in their broadcasts. And we've talked about this in the past. I love Chris Chelios. I love Mark Messier. You know what? I like Messier and Chelios because they always tell interesting stories, but they're not necessarily funny. You know what I mean? Although Dan Barkley was actually on ESPN. He was at that Stanley Cup final and he started talking with Chelios, which is funny because Barkley works for TNT and Chelios works for ESPN and they were talking on an ESPN broadcast. But he talked about like having some beers with Chelios and then he had a game the next day because the Suns were playing the Bulls in the NBA finals. Chelios and Messier have fun stories, but... They're not like life of the party fun. They're interesting. They're like the people you talk to at parties and they tell you interesting stories and you're like, wow, these people are really cool. But they're not like the ones who are like cracking you up and like who has like all the eyes on them like PK or like Jeremy Roenick. You know what I mean? Where they can really like almost steal that spotlight, but it's because they deserve it. So they're not really stealing the spotlight. It's just it's kind of drawn to them and they're just interesting people. I did see a commercial that said that he is getting his own PK's places uh, on ESPN Plus. So he's already got his own show that's going to be put over there. I don't know if you've ever seen the places. Peyton Manning has that series. It's like Peyton's place. And so they spun it off into different people have their own places. So they have their own shows. And he's just like MTV Cribs. Uh, Like look at houses. No, not really. It's something that, you know, they tell stories and they just shine a light on various things that they want to talk about and stories they want to tell and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's interesting, but it's on ESPN Plus. So unless you have a subscription to that, you wouldn't be able to find it unless you found it streaming somewhere else. But he already has that show. And so, yeah, is he going to make $3 million from ESPN? Probably not. Wouldn't shock me in the least if he didn't come out and sign some deal to be some sponsor for somebody making a ton of money as a sponsor, or who knows? Maybe he's going to start his own NFT company. I could see that. He could make more Bridgestone commercials. Could. You know, endorsement money is, that's big money. I don't know. We don't know his motivation. Maybe he'll come out later on and say what it really was. All I could say is good luck to him, and hopefully he'll be a regular part of somebody's broadcast this upcoming season. I got to tell you, I've been a fan of his since his rookie year. I'll tell you what it was. You know, I'd like to say, oh, I remember watching him play with the Hamilton Bulldogs. No, that's not true. I remember when 10-11 um, score came out, 2010-11 score hockey, when Panini got the license for hockey for those four years. And I remember on the box of 10-11 score hockey, it didn't have Crosby or it didn't have Ovechkin or didn't have Carey Price, which would have been all very safe people to put on a box of cards. They had two players. Do you remember who they were? PK was one of them. 
PK was one of them. And do you remember who the other one was? Trying to think on the score boxes. So Maple Leaf. I don't know. Nazem Kadri. Ah, uh, okay. And I thought that was really interesting that, like, they didn't put the most popular players on their box of cards. They put two prospects. Instead of, here's who's popular right now, it was kind of like, here's who we think are going to be great. And I also thought it was interesting that it was two people of color on a box of hockey cards. They launched with Certified, and I think Ovechkin was on the box of Certified. But then they came out with Score a couple weeks later or whatever. And I just thought that was a really interesting move by Panini in like in like a cool way. But I'm like, all right, PK is good enough to be on this box of hockey cards and Kadri. I didn't really play or collect either of them, but I did try to grab their rookie cards whenever I could. I was able to actually get a PK Subban young gun. I traded another blogger. I don't think he blogs anymore, but it was this blogger who's, I I really like reading his articles and he had an extra PK Subban rookie card, a young gun. And I had a uh, extra 68, 69 tops, the Lesbizito card. And we made a trade and it was nice because it was like, Eh, this is worth about 30 bucks. Eh, this is worth about 30 bucks. You're a Bruins fan, and I need that PK for my set. Boom. Love it when trades work out like that. Honestly, it's been a while since I've encountered an actual Subian collector. I know there's some out there. I talked to a guy a few years back that started collecting PK when he became a predator after the Shea Weber trade. Mm-hmm. And you know, I ran into a couple when he was in Montreal, too. Haven't really seen anybody since then. And that's that's the funny thing, too, is of all the guys we've talked about on this list, he has the most cards. He has over 2,400, almost 2,500 cards in the span that he was in the league. If you think about it, 2010-11 was his first year. So that year alone, he had 23 rookie cards. Well, he had two companies. Yeah, Because you did have two companies. You had the Upper Deck and Panini era. They were sharing the stage, so he's got a young gun, he's got a cup RPA, he's got a whole slew of Panini rookie cards. So there's plenty to choose from out there, but kind of just from my own observations as far as that, you know, he had his ups and downs with the hobby as well. In the early days, he got talked about a lot uh, hobby-wise. Like you said, he was, you know, cover person for the score. Score, Yeah. So, you know, he was kind of a hobby juggernaut in the beginning because there was a lot of attention being paid to him, being the fact that he was drafted by the Habs at the time. And again, we're going back to 2010, 2011. We were only starting to see like this slim, slim crack in racial diversity in the NHL. Right. Yeah, there were guys here and there, but you didn't get a lot of focus on it. And I think he brought a lot more attention to that because he was not only a a player of color, he was good. Yeah. Really good. You know, but as time rolled on, because he's kind of that, like we said, he's kind of that polarizing figure as far as his personality and outspoken nature and his interests outside of the game and everything else. I think his collecting popularity seemed to swing more from the traditional collectors, more towards the younger fans that kind of grew up with him as being this great blue liner, this great defenseman, you know, this mainstay on, you know, both Montreal and in Nashville. And like I said, his time in Nashville was pretty prosperous. And I think he saw a lot more interest in him. You know, you go from a traditional aspect of Montreal where it's like, 
hockey purist right Nashville where it's like party time 24 7 I think that fit his personality a lot more that kind of helped push his hobby interests but you know honestly playing in New Jersey in my opinion that didn't do him any hobby favors that's for sure so you think PK Subban going to the Predators actually made more people want to collect his cards because I actually thought the opposite was going to happen I kind of saw there was more interest in Shea Weber, or so it seemed, because now all of, all of a sudden he's with the Canadians, he's named the team captain. And then with Subban, it's like he goes from a hockey hotbed to Nashville, who does have a passionate fan base. Although I think it's funny that they had to keep fans from other cities from buying their tickets, like Blackhawk fans or whatnot, like coming to the Predators games and they're louder than the Predator fans sometimes, but that's not a diss on, on Preds fans necessarily. You know, it's kind of like playing for like Carolina. Would Sebastian Ajo be a more collectible player if he played on the Rangers or the Canadiens or the Maple Leafs? You know what I mean? Like versus the Carolina Hurricanes. I feel like most of the interest in him sure started with Canadians. And I think many people that became player collectors of him continued on afterward you're talking about suban yeah but i think a lot more people jumped on board when he became a predator just because he was getting a lot more attention and that's why i said i think it swung more towards the younger crowd at that point you know younger collectors rather than our age people let's put it that way okay i'm not a player collector for him so i really couldn't tell you i do have a lot of pk cards especially a lot of rookie cards look you know, because he has so many, there's so many you can sit here and talk about all from that, that year. You know, anything from a victory rookie, which you can get for a couple bucks, you know, or a Donruss rookie, which, you know, most of those can be had for five bucks or less. His young gun is $20, $25, not graded most of the time now. You know, future watch auto, believe it or not, you can find those for 35 to 50 bucks, which is a heck of a deal, mm-hmm. I think. But if you look at the big dogs, you know, his RPA with the cup, it's a $200 card. You know, his Panini Dominion RPA, which would be the, I guess, the Panini version of the cup. The cup. I guess would be for that year. That card's 80 to 100 bucks. You know, his ultimate signatures card, 40 to 50 bucks most of the time. So, you know, you can get some more premium cards of his that are rookie cards for between 50 and $100, some of the better ones. So he's still not like blowing the doors out. It's not like it's a Connor McDavid level price. But, you know, again, you got to look at the body of work, like we keep saying here, the total body of work. He was really good in Montreal for a while. He was pretty good in Nashville for a while. He was eh, less than stellar afterward. So it's like you look at all of the accolades and you look at how many times he was an all-star and everything else. You know. Yeah, he played in quite a few postseason games, but doesn't have a cup. So really, is, is this an argument of him going to be in the Hall of Fame? I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. Unless... I, think it's, I think it's another legendary player and personality but I don't know that he would be a Hall of Fame. What's your unless? Uh, unless six months later he decides he wants to come back, and he does. He pulls Maybe. a Tom Brady? 
Maybe. Although Tom Brady, you know, apples and oranges here, and we're talking about the greatest quarterback of all time versus a really good defenseman who we think is retiring too young. I don't know. It could happen. I guess the thing is, is that, like, can you still have great seasons as a defenseman from 33 to 40? Absolutely. Could he be an all-star a few more times in that span? Yeah. These are all possibilities, but if he's not interested, he's not interested. And if he wants to do other things, that's fine. And you know what? Another thing, too, is sometimes it's okay to say, you know what? All my fingers are still here. All my toes are still here. My legs still work. My arms still work. I don't have headaches when I go to sleep. And I think that's maybe an okay time to retire as well, to retire at 32, 33. And if you're not concussed or something like that, you know, you hear about players who retire because the injuries, right? And then it's like, you know, they're broken. More so with like other sports like football, but they're broken. They have an injury. You know, they played until they were 40, 40 something. And then they walk with the limp or whatever, or they have CTE after the fact or whatever. And there's something really okay about saying, you know what? I don't need to play until I'm 40. I'll play till I'm 33. I've made enough money that will free me to do other things that I want to do, like the philanthropy, like the charity. And then also, you know what? I like playing hockey, but I like talking about hockey too. And maybe I'm going to just be an analyst, not just be an analyst, but be an analyst, right? Like I've played a long time. I have an impressive body of work. I mean, enough to to talk about. So any last thoughts before we retire this podcast? Yeah, I have one last thought and I was going to bring it up at the beginning of the show, but I didn't. I'll just bring it up now uh, in case anybody was wondering. Starting lineups are back. Uh, The figures are coming out. They're not hockey yet. They're basketball right now. 50 bucks a piece. 50 bucks. Uh, Anyway, we'll talk about that on a future show, I'm sure. Yeah, we should do an episode about starting lineup hockey figures and me trying to find them in the early 90s and never being able to find them until like probably like the late 90s is when I was able to actually buy them in the store. But prior to that, I always had to buy them secondhand for like 30 bucks each. I saw that and I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Yeah, 50 That's for another day. Yes. All right, then. Thank you for listening to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. Hey, you know what? If you listen to this show on iTunes, give us a rating and a review on iTunes. That would totally help us make this podcast become more popular by getting ratings and reviews on iTunes. So if you use iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to give us a rating and a review. And until next time, collect what you like. For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at PuckJunk.